0: Hi, thank you all for joining us today. We have a great program, Brothers Crying Out from the Ground, The Biblical Origins of Our Divided Society with Judy Klitzner. And we are also being co-sponsored by uh, BMHBJ and Rabbi Ketopsky. And I will now pass things over to him to introduce our speaker.
1: Uh, Good morning, everybody. It's uh, nice to see all of you. Some of you we've seen in the past. Some of you were new. It's uh, nice to welcome all of you. Um, we're going to be taking a look at something that I know is on everyone's mind today, and that is the uh, fractured nature of our uh, society. And our presenter today is going to be helping us uh, look at that and maybe even propose some ways to deal with it by examining one of the earliest stories in our Torah, the story of uh, fratricide, the story of a brother an older brother killing a younger brother and setting the stage for a lot of behavior like that throughout the book of Breshit, the book of Genesis. And we're gonna see uh, what the implications, the long reach of that story is. And pleasure for me this morning to introduce our presenter, uh, Judy Klitzner, someone I've known for a very, very long time. Uh, she is the senior, a senior educator at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, where a cousin of mine is also a teacher. Uh, she teaches Tanakh and biblical exegesis. And she also serves as um, a teacher and head of Jewish studies programs uh, throughout uh, the Jewish world. She learned with Nahama Leibowitz, a pioneering teacher of Torah, and Judy herself is a popular international lecturer, brings a very accessible text-based learning and teaching style with an eye towards making the text as relevant as possible to audiences of all backgrounds. She's the author of a wonderful book, Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other, which won a National Jewish Book Award and is worthy of earning a space on all of your bookshelves in your homes as well. She is the founding board chair of Sacred Spaces, an organization that seeks to address abuses of power in Jewish institutions, another uh, troubling problem uh, that rears its ugly head far too often. Uh, In today's world, without any further ado, Judy Klitzner.
2: Thank you so much, Rabbi Chaitovsky. It's good to see you again too. Um, it's great to be here. I uh, I don't know if anyone here remembers, but I actually was physically at the Valley Beit Midrash teaching uh, quite a few years ago. I had the pleasure of meeting Rabbi Shmuley then. Um, sorry, I can't see you right now, but I, I wish you a I'm sure everyone joins me. in wishing you a refuah shlema, and I'm sure everyone joins me in feeling confident that you will be back at full power very, very soon. Um, okay, so as Rabbi Chaitavsky said, we've got a lot of work to do on a very troubling subject. Um, our former president, when I say our, I'm talking about the state of Israel where I'm, I live, I'm speaking to you from Jerusalem right now, uh, Ruby Rivlin said it some years ago and our current prime minister said it as recently as last week. Uh, both of these men, when asked the question, what is the greatest problem facing the Jewish people today? Um, while acknowledging that we've got many problems, right? We've got uh, dangers, anti-Semitism, the threat- threatening presence of Iran and all of its proxies, enemies, all kinds of things. But they both said that there's really only one existential threat to the Jewish people, and that is our internal divisiveness, our the fractious nature of, of relations among the Jewish people. Uh, here is how Rivlin put it. He said, here, it's, I hope you can see that. Somebody, Everybody give me a thumbs up. Yes, we see that, right? Thank you. Um, victory in the battle between us means losing the war of existence. It's a greater threat than nuclear bombs or terrorism, greater than the enemies who seek our destruction. The threat of internal division will always be the greatest threat of all. All right. And um, and I would say that sadly we are in fact a people divided in many ways. Here in Israel, um, after four incredibly contentious election cycles, and I'm, I'm really upset to announce that there's another one in the air, Another there's a p- great potential for yet another election. Um, right? It, it, all of that has made it abundantly clear. We are divided among political lines, religious lines, cultural lines. Um, I don't have to tell you about the divisions within the United States, um, the enormous chasms that seem to be growing all the time. Um, Jews on the right, Jews on the left, religiously, politically. And if all that weren't bad enough, we've got the divisions between Jews in Israel and Jews in the diaspora, Um, right? And and those, those divisions seem to be growing at an alarming rate. And of course, we all have really good reasons for promoting our own worldviews, right? We have reasons to be upset with those other people. Uh, We have reasons for opposing them. But in the process, we seem to be increasing the threat to our very survival, as Rivlin said, Uh, right? In this case, winning, right? Trouncing our opponent is really a form of losing. Uh, And and as Rabbi Chaitovsky said, very sadly, this is not a new problem. In fact, it's plagued us throughout our history. And if we just look at a couple of examples, the story of Hanukkah, we'd like to tell them, you know, the the good story about winning over our enemies, hooray for our side, boo for their side. Um, But what we like to talk about less are the divisions among Jews at that time, including the fact that the the Maccabees were forcibly circumcising the Hellenized Jews, uh, right? For their own good, of course. Um, we have uh, the story of Gedalia, the, the first, a political assassination by Jews of another Jew, and of course, the modern equivalent of that um, that I lived through here in Israel—the the horrific reality that a Jew could raise a hand against a Jewish prime minister and assassinate him. Who would have ever believed that such a thing could be possible? Um, and what I want to do with you today is take take the story back even further um, to the Bible. Uh, because that's that's where it begins, and the story there is presented in a very very elaborate way. Um, first of all, the first family that we meet is presented um, in, in a, as a nuclear family, and I would say as a nuclear family in two ways. First of all, it it is comprised of a father, a mother, and two children. Um, but it's also a nuclear family in this way, in that it is internally combustible. Right? We've got we've got. Two siblings on earth, and one of them is compelled to kill the other one. Um, right? And throughout the book of Genesis, it starts this way. And if you think about it, it ends this way. And it, right, the book ends to the story. There's a fratricide at the beginning. There's a near fratricide at the end in the story of Joseph and his brothers. And in between, there's lots and lots of sibling strife. Um, For instance, the story of Jacob and and Esau, Esau where Esau threatens to kill his brother. Uh, He doesn't do it, right? We never rise to the level of actual murder again, but there are are, are, um, echoes of it throughout the book. So, in the in the time that we have together i want to explore a couple of really difficult questions first of all why is this theme of fractiousness and near murder so insistently presented in the book of genesis the bible's very first book and and in its presentation of our of our divisions why are they is this is this strife presented consistently in the form of siblings? What is it about the sibling relationship that somehow captures our tendencies to not get along with one another? And of course, the third question that I want to address is what does all of this have to say about what's going on today? Um, Okay, so to give away my hand, here's where I want to go with it. First of all, I'm going to argue that the Bible opens with this um, because there is something primal about sibling tensions something that is fundamental to the human condition right and by having us all start out as siblings right we are we we can all trace ourselves back to that original family on the deepest level we are in fact all siblings uh, and yet with that, again, there is this sense that there's something fraught, inherently fraught about that relationship that, that in which can, and, and if it is handled, if it isn't handled properly, red flags start to fly and, and, and there's an enormous danger of verbal violence that can then descend into physical violence. Okay, so that's where we need to go today. Um, that enough introduction, now it's time to get to work. And here's what I would like to try with you. Um, here is our first text. This is the story of Cain and Abel, and Alex was good enough to send out on the chat, I think, um, the source materials, if you'd rather see, see them in that way. What I'd like to ask you to do is to Take five minutes and read this text on your own in whatever language you choose. It's here in Hebrew and in English. Um, And as you read, I'd like you to just try in your mind to think about if you had to give attach a few adjectives to the character of Cain. It's about Cain and Abel. How would you characterize Cain? how would you characterize Abel? Just based on the information that we have right here. Okay, and we're gonna look at how, what is it about this combination that led to the explosion that we're about to see? But for now, just think about if you had to attach a few adjectives to Cain, what would they be? And to Abel, what would they be? Five minutes, how many? And then we will reconvene. I'm just thinking we're not a big crowd. So I think at that point, I will invite everyone to unmute and I will be very happy to hear your thoughts. Okay, five minutes? Let's get some work done. Let's pretend we are in a rock and bait midrash. How's everybody doing? Should we reconvene? Okay. Who would like to who would like to say something about Cain? How would you characterize him? Um, surface
3: surface value reacts basically. Um, what was that first word? Surface, um, he looks at the surface of things and kind of reacts basically.
2: Okay, certainly on, at the end of the story, surface yeah. and, wow, yes, okay. Yeah. What else?
3: Um, it looks to me, this is just my you know particular thing that God might not have wanted Cain to have brought the first fruit. He might've actually, the test might've been, you may rule over it. You may rule over these temptations, you know, these violent tendencies, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, that might be what the point was.
2: Fantastic. I want to get back to that point, to God's very, very mysterious proclamation here. Mm-hmm. Yes. What about Cain? Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Um, I've always okay. wondered, like, there must be a Midrash somewhere. Because just on the shut, you know, you don't know what Cain did wrong. He brought right. the first fruits, which is an offering to Hashem. Good. And there, there's oh. nothing, no background story to tell us why it was rejected. Right. Um, it's his reaction to it that's a problem, but right. we don't know what it was and why. Good. Okay. So I think what, what the, so far what I've heard, I think you're both picking up on this, this dual nature of, of Cain as he's presented here. Um, he 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 seems like a pretty decent guy. I think at the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, and notice here right, the, 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 when his mother gives birth to the two of them, there are, it seems to be these expectations that are flung onto the two children. Um, in Hebrew, Kaniti Ish Et Hashem, Um This very ambiguous. I have I have. I have acquired a man. Who's the man? What is acquired? It could mean I have created a man. I have created a child. She seems to be suggesting here something about acquiring and creating. And one might say that Cain is imbued with both of those abilities. He is very, he's creative. He's the guy who's going to come up with the idea of an offering. No one has ever done this before. He's going to take 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 uh, initiative on this. He's the guy who's going to go. I I think he's also quite responsible. Nobody said that, but but the fact that he's going into his father's failing business, right? The the earth has been cursed. He's going to be the one to to till the soil, even though that's going to be very difficult. Notice notice Abel when he's born. How his how his birth is introduced Um, in the Hebrew et Hevel, right? There's there's almost this right, grand introduction to the birth of, birth of Cain. She conceived, she bore Cain, she made this big declaration, I have acquired a man with the Lord. Then, and she continued to give birth to his brother, Hevel, right? Who How'd you like to be the child in that birth announcement? It's like a big yawn, ho-hum. Oh yeah, that brother, that son who really matters, another one was born after him. there is no reason given for his name, but this word Hevel is not a neutral word in the Bible. Where have we seen this word before? Anybody? Hevel? In the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, Havel havalim hakol Hevel. Everything is vanity. Everything is, is vaporous, fleeting, insubstantial. And here is a child who's named Right, fleeting, and and in fact, it's almost communicating to us. Don't get don't get too attached to him. He's not going to be around very long. But we get this sense that he is the less essential child. Um, notice also that um, Cain is is a shepherd. I'm sorry, Abel is a shepherd. Cain is a tiller of the soil. Um, what do we need shepherds for at this stage in biblical history? Um, human beings are all vegetarians. They're not eating meat. If, if there are two strapping young men who are keeping the world alive, one of them is tilling the soil and, and, and basically producing all the food. And the other one I picture doing, well, this is, this is what I picture Kane doing. This is what I picture Abel doing, right? He's a philosopher. He's a liberal arts major. He's sitting under a tree reading a book. Uh, maybe he can knit some sweaters from the sheep. Maybe he can milk them. But he's not hes not feeding the family with these sheep. Uh, there seems to be something less serious about him. However, suddenly, and let's get back to it, things change. Cain is the one who brings the offering. And as you pointed out, how do you pronounce your name? Aventers? I did it wrong, I know. Aglaya. What's that? Aglaya, my name's Aglaya. Agloya? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're, you're, it said something else, but thank you, Agloya. Oh, what
3: does it say? Oh, Aventus,
2: sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just reading. In any case, um, um, wait, who was it who asked the question? What did he do wrong? Right? It seems like, why did God choose one offering over the other? Well, I hope you noticed when you looked at this, um, there's a hint here when the two offerings are presented, Cain brought from the fruit of the earth. How many adjectives do we see there? Fruit. He brought fruit. What does Abel bring? From the firstborn of his flock and from their fat. He gets two adjectives. I think of it, you know, uh, if, if, if I say my, my, my son Akiva bought me an expensive shiny necklace and my daughter, Nahama, bought me earrings. What might we infer about the earrings I got from my daughter? Right? If, I, if I attach two, adject- two glowing adjectives to one piece of jewelry and zero adjectives to the other, I can understand I'm communicating in a subtle way that the second one is not quite as good as the first. And that's the way that the commentators have read this, Um, That because Cain brought fruit, but we're not told what kind of fruit, that he didn't do his personal best, whereas Abel takes his brother's idea and does it better. And that leads us to the question of, is, is Abel completely without blame here? What's his game? What is he doing? And I have found that when I teach this, it generally your opinion on that generally hinges on where you are in your in the birth order or in your family. Um, if you're a firstborn, you if you're a secondborn, you're going to say that second brother is 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 emulating the older brother out of admiration. What a, what an amazing thing you did! I want to be just like you. But if you're a firstborn, you're saying what an annoying little pest. Taking my idea, usurping it, and taking all the credit, doing it better, one-upping me, and trying to trying to 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 shame me, right? And and it's possible that this second reading is not so far-fetched. I, I have to say um, supporting it. Um, I noticed after reading this approximately a thousand times, I noticed it on the thousand and first time that this word in Hebrew, bechorot, is not not such an innocent word when dealing with fraternal tensions in the text. The whole book of Genesis is about siblings vying over who gets to be the firstborn. And here is the secondborn bringing an offering that is a firstborn. Is there any possible symbolism in that? Well, perhaps, okay? Um, so I, I wanna just throw that out mainly because I think it's important to realize in our first story of sibling rivalry that Almost always, it's not a zero-sum game. Even that right, there's that one one child is all all right, and the other one is all wrong, and that's you know it's just a one-sided uh, victimizer and victim. In this case, of course, when Cain chooses the the course of violence, it becomes a very simple story, and and there is a villain a, a villain in the story. But up until then, things are quite complex. Here is um, God's very very complicated message to Cain. And I'm just going to t- t- touch on two points that God makes. Basically, God is giving a recipe to Cain. He's saying, listen, I, I want to stop you before you do. And this is very rare for God to intervene to pre- preemptively and say, and I-, I picture Cain standing with his hand over his brother, ready to smack him. And God saying, hold it, freeze. I have something to tell you before you do this. Listen to me. If you do well, te tif it. There will be uplift. Okay, now this is all again very puzzling. But I think what God is saying to him is you're so upset, you're so angry at, at this situation. How about if you just clean up your own act? How about if you just do better? Instead of blaming others, instead of feeling that this was done to you, think about what you could do better. And then just as your face fell. And I hope you noticed that when you were reading that the, the text describes his misery as his face falling. So God is basically saying, you want your face to be lifted back up again. Just do better. And Team Sholbo, rule over it. Rule over those demons that are that that are that are tempting you, that are, that are taking you off your path into into feelings of competitiveness and anger. Right and vi- and violent thoughts rule over that, and then and then you won't have any any issues at all. I would argue that that while God is communicating that message, Cain is has whipped himself into up into such a state that he's hearing something else entirely. Oh, God says, if you do well, meaning if you do better than your brother se'it." And this word uplift is used later on in the text. To refer to Reuven, who is the firstborn of Jacob, where Jacob's in Jacob's blessing to his eldest son, he says, "Yetter you have greater uplift, lift. meaning you are the ruler, you are the you are essentially the, the 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 king of all of your brothers." And what is what is Cain hearing here? Oh, I want that kind of se'it. I want I want to I want to win. I want to have primacy over my brother, and bow rule over it. God is saying, rule over yourself. And what he's hearing is, Timsholbo, rule over him. He's looking to rule. And this word Moshel in Hebrew to rule is a very loaded term. Um, that term was used once before in the text, um, but to refer to the celestial bodies, to the sun and the moon that rule the day and rule the night. And essentially, I think what what, what, what the story is telling us, the narrative is conveying to us, the reader, is that rulership is not for human beings over other human beings. It's rulership is for is for suns and moons and stars to rule over people. People should not be ruling over each other. But here is Cain, who wants nothing, nothing less than to rule over his brother. Um, and he, at this point, has whipped himself up into such a, a self-righteous anger that he's now, he's now ready to strike. There's no talking to him, right? The red flags are, are flying. And here we have a very unusual text. Cain said to Abel, his brother, Vayhi basade. they were in the field. Cain arose over Abel, his brother, and killed him. And of course, there is a gaping hole in this, in this, Verse. Um, Cain said to Abel his brother, What do we expect there? We expect some content to the to what he said. And instead, we've got silence. What did he say? Um, and then he kills him. And so we have this is where Midrash comes in. Um, Midrash tries to fill gaps in the text by saying, you know what, it's not in there, but here's here's a plausible read of what might have been in there. Okay, so here are three scenarios that are presented by this Midrash. Okay, does everybody see this thing on the page? With me here? Good, okay. Scenario number one, according to the Midrash Rabbah, Cain said to Abel, his brother. Okay, so the first question that the Midrash asks, what are they arguing about? They said, come, let us divide the world. One took the land and the other took the movable objects. One said, the land you are standing on is mine. The other said, well, what you're wearing is mine. One said, take it off. The other said, get off. As a result, Cain arose over Abel, his brother, and killed him. Okay, scenario number one, what are they arguing about? Land and stuff. Scenario number two in the Midrash, what were they arguing about? One said, in my portion will the holy temple be built. The other said, in my portion will the holy temple be built. As a result, Cain arose over Abel, his brother, and killed him. What are they arguing about? The holy temple. And the third opinion with apologies, Rabbi Yehuda Bar-Ami said they were arguing about Chava. Why apologies? Because this is disgusting. They're basic arithmetic. There are four human beings in the world. Three of them are men. One of them is a woman. The, quest, the, the the argument is about who gets the mother, okay? Basically, if we pair these three opinions down into three words, land, what's the second one? Religion. What's the third one? Sex. Land, religion, sex. Basically, what the Midrash is saying, take a war, any war, throughout history, and you could pretty much Fitted into one of these one of these three categories. This right, basically what the midrash is doing before the first murder is to say this is not just the first murder. This is the first war. What is it that makes people fight? What makes them fight is one of these three these three things. Rashi, however, the preeminent medieval commentator, says rejects all of this, and he said that is not what they were arguing at all. Cain, what did he say? He engaged in contentious words with him. To create a pretext to kill him. And then he says, Yeah, I know about those, those midrashim. I've I read them too, but this is the plain sense of the text. Basically, what he's doing is he's saying the words are just a smokescreen. Basically, what's happening here is the breakdown of communication where words are being used not to converse, not to talk with, but to talk at. He's using the word, weaponizing his words, so that he can end up killing him. And I would argue that if if the midrash gives us three scenarios that lead to war, this one, the one that Rashi presents, is more fundamental than any of those three. And in a sense, it underlies all other causes. Is whatever it is that you're arguing about when you stop communicating, when there is no longer any room for dialogue, but there is only fury and 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 withdrawal from one another. That's when the red flags start flying, and that's when violence is the logical next step. Okay, and I hope you noticed when we were reading that this little word, ah, brother, keeps on repeating itself. Cain said to Abel his brother, Cain killed Abel his brother, but the text is reminding us, it's almost hitting us over the head with this word to say, look, first of all, be appropriately horrified by this. This is a brother This crime is a a sibling raising a hand against a sibling and taking its life. And I would add that by extension, all murder after this is going to be a form of fratricide. And again, a more subtle point that there is something that is especially fraught about this sibling relationship and that maybe even the greatest danger among people when they fight has to do with this level of closeness that we are going to find among siblings. More on that very soon. What we have to do now, because we are going to run out of time, is to fast forward through the book of Genesis all the way to the end. I mentioned at the beginning that we've got these terrible bookends of fratricide at the beginning, near fratricide at the end, and here we've got Joseph. Um, And again, when we think of Joseph generally, we think As we do in the story of Cain and Abel, they are the good guys and the bad guys, right? Joseph is the victim in this story. He's like Abel. Uh, He is the one who is most loved, right? Abel, we could say, is loved by God more, perhaps. Joseph is loved by his father more. Uh, Joseph's name in Hebrew, Yosef, means to add. And if you remember the way that Hevel, Abel, is introduced, Vatosef, he is the additional child. They're both additional Um, Both of them are victims of of sibling hatred, but what I find more intriguing here is how Joseph is not just like Abel, the victim, he's also in some very real ways like Cain as well. When we first meet him, he is bringing evil reports about his brothers. Now, keep in mind, he is most loved by his father, but he needs to press his advantage over them by whispering evil things about his brothers to their father, right? Making sure that, that, that he retains, right? Sole ownership of, of his father, of, of their, of their father's love. Uh, afterwards, he comes to his brothers and says, "I had a dream. Right in my first dream, my sheaves of your sheaves of, of grain are bowing down to mine." And the brothers respond by saying, "Imashol Are you going to rule over us? Right? These are thin, not barely, barely not even thinly veiled. They're barely veiled at all. Dreams of grandeur. I am dreaming of ruling over you, and they see that." But this word again, Mosheil, to rule, that was the that was the same word that we saw in the story of Cain and Abel, where God is warning him not to try to rule over his brother. That's for the sun and the moon and the stars. And, and then when we get to, to dream number two, guess what Joseph's dreaming about? The sun and the moon and the stars, the the very symbols of rulership in the world. I'm so powerful that those symbols of of power and rulership are going to bow down to me, right? That's what, and and he makes sure to tell his brothers all of this, right? He doesn't just dream it. He insists on speaking about it and telling it and talking, and the words talking recur again and again and again, and I think very, very uh, appropriately, the brothers respond with this, I don't know if you can see where I'm pointing, but back in the first line, they hated him. The result is they will cannot speak peacefully to him. They can't speak a friendly word. How appropriate. He is using his speech against them. And their response is, we are withdrawing our speech from you. And here we get to the same dangerous situation where we have with Cain and Abel brothers, one brother speaking at the other one. And here now we have one brother speaking about the other ones, but again, not with them. There is no speech that is even possible. Okay, so where do we go from here? Um, I would argue that, um, okay, here's what I wanna say. The brothers have to go through a process before reconciliation can take place. And there's been a lot of talk and a lot of study about that what what happens to the brothers how do they fall into a similar situation and learn to do better but i'm more interested in joseph and i would argue that he has to go through a process too because he is not innocent in the story and what process i think he needs to go he needs to go through is similar to the process that many people go through so that they can understand Bad behavior on their part, and that is when they are on the receiving end of that same behavior. There is no no teacher like be like, we, like like experience understanding what it means to feel the pain the pain that you have previously caused to others. And I think where that happens for Joseph is when he's in the house of Potiphar, and where he is um, the victim of abusive, controlling, dominating speech on the part of Potiphar's wife. And here, the Hebrew words for speaking, le daber, les mors, each one appears no fewer than seven times in this story. And we're just gonna race right through it here. Um, there's this barrage of speaking words on her part. First of all, um, in Joseph's, his master's wife raised her eyes to Joseph and said, lie with me. Okay, the first use of speech is this power-driven, Order and and if we had more time, I would talk about right. Is this what kind of sexual um, overture is this? It 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 really isn't. Um, Rabbi Chaitovsky mentioned in introducing me that I am very involved in in addressing abuse in in Jewish organizations. Um, what we have here, I think pure and simple, is a case of sexual harassment by a powerful employer over a powerless servant, um, where she's ordering him, lie with me. And she says these same words, me, day after day. Notice that she is called his master's wife. Eshet Adonab, there's no ambiguity here. That's her position. And that in that position, she is ordering him to lie with her. So there, the speech is used to, 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 uh, to kind of bully him in this way. Um, he refuses, but she continues to speak to him every single day. And when, and we don't have time to go into it, but she finally, her, her verbal uh, assault is escalates into a physical assault. He runs away. Um, and now she has to construct a story that is going to implicate Joseph and exonerate herself. So she calls her household staff and tries to Bring you know, trying to create allies among her staff. Now, this is a big ask, given the fact that in, in ancient Egypt, that things are very hierarchical. How can she, how can she bring about a sense of camaraderie with her servants? Um, well, she does it quite, quite, um, quite artfully. She says to them, and again, notice all the speaking words. Lahem she said to them, saying. Um, here in the English. See, he has brought a Hebrew man to mock Mm -hmm. us, right? Why doesn't she call him what he really is? The Hebrew servant, right? But what she understands is that if she says Hebrew servant, they will feel a sense of connection to Joseph. So instead of playing the class card, she plays the race card. He's an Ish Ivri. He's a Hebrew man, uh, she's she's using her words in a very, very manipulative and crafty manner in order to get the desired results. Notice when she speaks to her husband later on, again, the, the words, the words for words abound, but to daber divrei, dibra, devarim, words, 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 words. Here to her husband, she calls him an ever, she calls him a Hebrew servant. Why? Now in order for her husband to support her, she cannot play the, the, the race, she's not gonna play the race card, she's gonna play the class card, right? What what possible choice will he have? Um, he can't defend a servant if his wife, the mistress of the house, is is publicly making this claim. Basically, what I wanna say is, as a result of all of these manipulations, um, uh, what, what ends up happening is that Joseph is thrown into jail, his life is seriously in danger, Um, And by the intervention of God, he is miraculously spared until finally he is ready to meet his brother's once again. And here is the moment of the great reveal. Okay. Again, what I'm arguing is that experience in the house of Potiphar has changed Joseph. He there, he was the vulnerable person. She was the person with all the power and especially the power of speech that was used against him. And now look at look at Joseph. Joseph now says to his brothers, I am Joseph. And now a very familiar situation. They are, they are, they are struck speechless. He has all the power, more than anyone could have ever imagined. When he had dreams of rulership, nobody imagined that he would actually rule over the vast Egyptian empire. But here he is, right? The the, the second to the king of all of Egypt. And he's revealing his true identity. I am Joseph. And they were unable to answer him because they were dumbfounded, struck silent. But this time, instead of Joseph saying, good, that's exactly where I want you. He says, draw near to me, right? He calls them close now. And now he, he he calms them. It is not you who sent me here, but God, right? He doesn't blame them. He takes responsibility, gives God the responsibility. And God has made me a ruler over all of Egypt, but not to control you, rather to provide for you, right? He's basically saying, I look at my power, not as a way of dominating you, but as a way of, 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 of helping you, of, of, of assuming responsibility for you and taking care of you, sustaining you. Okay, and I would argue that as a result of this really incredible change in Joseph's use of speech, his brothers are in fact drawn in, and we have um, what I would call one of the greatest anticlimaxes of all time. Um, But I, I think the way we're reading this is going to help us understand it. In the moment of the highest drama, and this has been building up for an unprecedented 13 chapters in this book, the story of Joseph and his brothers, and when are they finally going to reconcile? And here it is, finally, and we've got everybody falling on each other's necks and crying. Joseph fell on Benjamin's neck and cried, and Benjamin cried on his neck. He kissed his brothers. He cried on them. And afterwards, right, we're holding our breath. Now what? His brothers Spoke with him. Now that sounds to me almost, almost laughable, right? Okay, they're crying and falling and, and talking, but if we read this the way that we've been reading it, and in fact, we since the very beginning of the Book of Genesis, this is what we've been waiting for: this moment where speech can be used to, 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 to. To, to build bridges rather than to destroy connections. Um, to, 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 instead of speaking at or speaking about for finally what we have is speaking with, um, right? Joseph takes the first step in restoring that broken relationship and the brothers respond by restoring that speech that they had withheld from him at the very beginning of the story. And this, I would say, like this shepherds us out of the book of Genesis, gives us a real feeling of hope. Something can change. Communication can begin. And that prepares us for the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, where we're going to be, be begin building the household of Israel. Okay. Um, here I want to go now, to this. I would say even though the book of Genesis ends on an optimistic note with dialogue finally beginning, it also leaves us with a feeling of a very dire warning. Just by focusing so intently on this theme of sibling fractiousness, it's warning the reader, this is a danger and it will remain a danger, right? There's something that is so fraught about this. And in a sense, we are all Siblings. Why is it so fraught? Um, and here, if you'll allow me in the remaining time, I want to uh, present some thoughts of various thinkers, and I will take the liberty of including myself in one of those thinkers because I've thought about this a lot. Uh, to begin with, uh, our siblings are the people who are, we could argue, are the closest people to us. They know us the most intimately. That can be wonderful and it it usually is, but it can also be threatening. It can also be annoying, right? Sometimes we work really hard to construct, very carefully construct a persona in the world and our siblings remind us of who we once were. And maybe deep down, we know that that's who we're always going to be. Sometimes our siblings are just a little too close for comfort. Here are some 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 uh, comments that I've come across. Um, here's one: We know one another's faults, virtues, catastrophes. Talking about siblings, mortifications, triumphs, rivalries, desires, and how long we can each hang by our hands to a bar. We have been banded together under pack codes and tribal laws. Our siblings push buttons that cast us in roles we felt sure we had let go long ago. The baby, the peacekeeper, the caretaker, the avoider. It doesn't seem to matter how much time has elapsed or how far we have traveled. Okay, so on the one hand, they're they're too close, but on the other hand, there is paradoxically, sometimes we feel that our our siblings are, are not quite close enough, right? often we expect them because they're so close, we expect them to be exactly like us. And if they veer even ever so slightly from our own values, our own priorities, uh, somehow we can feel outraged, offended, almost betrayed by those tiny differences. Um, And here in the words of another writer, our siblings, they resemble us just enough to make all their differences confusing, right? And I would add even infuriating and even threatening. Uh, right. It seems that sometimes with siblings you just can't win. Um, and what I wanna argue is that when we look around us, we find that most of the conflicts around us are extensions of this sibling conundrum. Those who are the closest to each other, but yet not quite close enough. Um, politically, and I would say most world conflicts, if you think about it, are, are between countries that share borders or countries in which people, different people, very similar of similar ethnic backgrounds live within the same borders. They are almost the same. And and to the outsider, they would look exactly the same. Um, but those small differences are what they decide is what defines them um, and have led to some of history's most horrific bloodbaths. Um, those of you who remember in the 1990s in Rwanda, this, this horrible slaughter uh, where the Hutus uh, slaughtered up to a million Tutsis. These They are all from Bantu extraction. They speak the same dialect of Bantu. Um, And here, I think this this Venn diagram is not quite accurate, that the similarities are much, much greater than this little middle ground would would suggest. But all they are looking at is is the difference, not not the similarity. And I would say that in religion, we all know this as well, right? We tend to overlook the vast common ground between us and hyper-focus on the differences, right? Anybody to an inch to the right of me is of course, Um, a fanatic, and anybody to a half an inch to the left of me is a total heretic, right? Those differences, no matter how small they are, can be the distinguishing line between truth and the betrayal of truth. Um, And here, just to give you a personal anecdote about where I have fallen into this trap um, is what I like to call the LL test. Back in the day when I used to travel a lot, um, I would board an LL plane and I would come across, I would have to go through a security check, something that looks a little bit like that. And I want to relate to you something that happened to me, um, a scenario that happened at least five times, where the earnest young security questioner looks at me, right? A woman of a certain age with a shmata on her head, looking kind of religious, coming from the land of the Jews. And then she points behind me to a gentleman who looks kind of like this, a Hasid in full gear. And then she takes us both in, and then she says, um, inevitably, she asks, are you together, right, you and him? And I'm thinking, are you Have you lost your senses? Do we look anything like each other that we should be together? And she's thinking, well, yeah, you kind of do, right? You're both these the observant Jews with the shmatas on your head, coming from the land of the Jews at a certain age, right? Well, yeah. And what we're thinking, me and him, is we have Absolutely nothing in common. All we see is this gulf between us. Right. And we're both equally horrified. And I'm not sure who answers more quickly, me or him um, or more emphatically. Maybe we both do it together, but we go, no, 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 we're not together. And I, I just want to say right here and now I take it as my personal challenge. Um, that next time this happens, and it certainly will, um, to be a little less horrified, maybe not even horrified at all, and to even answer, take a deep breath and say, you know, with all that he and I have in common, in some very deep sense, yes, we really, really are together. Now, I don't know how he's going to take that, but that's my plan. That's what I'm going to try the next time. And not just with with this person with whom I feel a great deal of religious difference, but to be able to feel the commonality, but also to think about politically and philosophically, right, the challenge is to see more of that biyachad, the uniting piece than than the differences um, that separate and to, and to feel actually less threatened and and see that we're all part of, of the same spectrum. Okay, um, I'm gonna take three more minutes and then I really will leave room for, for questions. Um, our divisions have been growing. Um, it seems like it's be getting a lot worse lately. Um, is why is this? And I think that really what, what's been happening is that as our gaps are growing, our ability to speak to each other, our ability to communicate is shrinking and this is a very dangerous combination, right? There's just much more talking at each other, much more talking about each other and almost disappearing um, at efforts at talking with each other. Um, and I think a big part of the problem, what I've seen in my travels, um, is there in, increasingly we're engaging in various forms of silencing. I think, first of all, we screen out, block out people and even news sources, anything that opposes an idea, something different than what we already believe. We, we, we screen it out so that it doesn't, it doesn't reach us at all. Sometimes we block out people before we meet them, um, or give them a chance, right? You're a Republican, you're a Democrat. We, there's nothing we could possibly talk about. Um, you, you, you've you signed on to APAC, to J Street, right? If you give the wrong answer, that's it. Conversation is simply not not going to happen. Even more disturbing on college campuses, what I came across many times is a kind of active, sometimes even violent kind of silencing, which is actually shouting down people who are coming to present an idea that people find find too different. Um, right that's literally like weaponizing words i mean it's 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 really it's completely out of control um I would say that to me the most disturbing silence of all is a kind of self-silencing um, where to be remain a member in good standing in one's own chosen group we find ways to overlook rationalize or outright deny some of the terrible trends that are happening in our own camp um, in the on the right, whether it we see racist dog whistles that people on the right will tend to overlook on the left um, what, what, what I've seen is is a kind of demonization of Israel that borders on and sometimes crosses over into anti-Semitism. Um, Deborah Lipstadt in, in her wonderful book about anti-Semitism refers to this as a kind of tacit Israel disloyalty oath that, that Jewish students feel they have to take, right? I'm not a Zionist so that you'll be accepted in liberal circles. Um, this is, this is, uh, and, 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 we don't allow ourselves to even think about what, what does that mean um, if we belong to a group that, that enforces such a thing. Um, I've spoken to numerous liberal rabbis who have told me they've simply stopped talking about Israel because, um, because their congregants would be too upset, um, right? They call it death by Israel. Um, so they're it's right. They're silencing themselves. I won't talk about this one you know, pillar of our of our Jewish identity about Israel because because people are too are too divided. Um, I find all of this very very sad. Um, but I want to end with this. What are we supposed to do about it? I'm gonna I'm gonna offer basically three ingredients that I think are presented have been presented in the book of Genesis as we've studied it today. First of all, remember that we all started as family and so we're still family. Um, And that when things are contentious, even when they get nuclear, opting out should not be an option. Um, Sadly, this is still under, under discussion. I have met with some young people for whom it is not at all a given that we are one people. And I think this is something that we have to actively engage in, especially among the younger generation. Um, Ingredient number two that I think the book of Genesis um, instructs, it reminds us that as in all close relationships, communication and hard work are the, our only options. Um, And again, Rishit, the book reminds us to push back as Sisyphean as this might be in the common climate, current climate, to push back against this culture of talking at and talking about, um, and start pushing for more talking with, um, and to take our inspiration, I would say, from the basic texts that we, that we, that are ours, um, right, that, that demonstrate the value of constructive debate, right? We have this little amount of primary text and all of this discussion and debate around it, right? We've got this intergenerational conversation that is sometimes contentious, but it is ultimately constructive and leaves us with something much, much stronger and more powerful. I think what we can do is find a great deal of of resonance and inspiration in this. Um, And finally, I would say that the book of Genesis reminds us to heed God's Warning to Cain, which is Tetev Sait and Tinsholbo, instead of trying to browbeat other people into being more like us, basically to do our own internal work, to become the best versions of ourselves and of our people as we can possibly be, um, basically to proudly embrace our own traditions such as these texts, um, as we're doing here today, find the relevant messages and, and really deep do a deep dive into them. Okay, all these ingredients combined, I think, take us back to the Atem Biyachad challenge. Are we together? Can we be together? I want to leave you with my hope, my fervent prayer, which I invite you to join me, uh, that increasingly we will learn to respond to the challenge with a resounding yes, um, that in the deepest, most enduring ways, we are in fact a people that is Biyachad, that is together. Questions? Comments? Concerns?
3: I, mean, I had just put in the chat that, um, well, parental um, uh, parental intervention is often necessary in sibling rivalry cases. Um, and on a grand scale, we have to look at it as God is the parent of all of us. So I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, as God is what? God is parent to all. You know overall though so um not to sound kind of corny though but uh because uh like i like him like naomi's comments he's the parent uh, he may be the parent but he seems to encourage the rivalry i like that comment but um that's you know if you care to you know say something about <laughs> god's behavior well about god being the one who's the parent over all of us and then well parental intervention in
2: <laughs> sibling rivalry yeah no I, I actually find it very troubling and uh i make it i make it my policy never to speak for god um and so i i um <laughs> i, I am in fact disturbed by god's behavior in that in that in that story um because it does help whip it up although at the same time god comes in and says, okay, let's, let's try to take it down now. And, 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 and encourages Cain to take it away from a sense of sibling rivalry. God is essentially telling Cain that it's not about your problem with him. It's your problem with yourself. Um, maybe, maybe God could have played it a little better.
3: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for God in that way though, but uh, oh. <laughs> it would have been an offering. Okay. Just uh, you know, maybe it would have been an offering for Cain to have like just said, "I'm not going to kill my brother." My offering to you is to you know <laughs> rule over this savage <laughs> instinct in me, so I don't know <laughs> I
2: think that for God is trying is trying to pull him cain mm-hmm. uh, is is constantly pulling it back to that to that narrative mm-hmm. of competing and winning mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Oh, I see something, something just uh, came up in the chat. Oh, just thanking you. And yes, I was going to do the same. Thank you so much, Judy. Very, very interesting presentation. Um, we, do, we have like three minutes left. I don't know if there's anybody else, maybe you have time for one more question. All right.
1: I wanna, I wanna yes, thank I, you, Judy. I and thank everyone. Okay. I, just wanna, I just wanna say that my cousin at Pardes is Rav Alicia. Oh, and so he's married to my cousin.
2: Very nice. He is. Yes. Quite a. a, Thank uh,
1: you so much for a nice presentation. Yes. Thank Thank
2: you.
0: Thank you so much. And also thank you to our, to our co-sponsors and Rabbi Chetovsky for joining us today. Um, I just want to let everybody know we have uh, another opportunity to learn together next week on a similar subject. Um, our next program is June 16th at 1 p.m. Pacific. Uh, please join us for a Cain and Abel's Day in Court, What the World's First Murder Can Teach Us About Dispensing Justice and Injustice with Rabbi Dan Ornstein. And, uh, and thank you all again for joining us today. Have a wonderful day.